Tom Whitaker became the first amputee to climb Mount Everest in 1998. He once said of his mountaineering lifestyle, one of the things that really attracts me about mountaineering is its total pointlessness, so I've dedicated my life to it. (laughs) Well, isn't that great? (laughs) The preacher in Ecclesiastes dedicated himself to pursuing the pointlessness of life on earth. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're looking at the passage beginning in verse 12 as we pick up our study. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12 as we begin this morning. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. This is, of course, Solomon, the king, the son of David. And I have set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. The English Standard Version of this passage reads, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. It is an unhappy business that God has given to be busy with. This is the first mention of God in the book of Ecclesiastes. And God has given this unhappy business to us. What is this unhappy, grievous, troubling business that God has intentionally given to humanity? It is the quest to find meaning and purpose in life. This is one of the major differences between the animal world and the human world, between the animal world that God created and humans made in the image of God. This is a critical difference between us. Animals live by their instincts. They do not worry about meaning or purpose in life. An animal has no concern over what is the meaning of life. Humans alone, made in the image of God, have this drive put into us by God to find the meaning in life, the significance of life. Someone has said that it is better to be a discontented Socrates than a contented pig. Maybe. But the preacher would say, maybe not. He dedicated himself to finding meaning in life. And he says, I studied and I searched and I did all of this to find the meaning of life. And it turned into this troubling, frustrating quest. Because his thesis in Ecclesiastes, apart from God... Making sense out of life is like chasing the wind. Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of the rock group Queen, who died of AIDS at the end of 1991, wrote in one of his last songs on the Miracle album, Does anybody know what we are living for? Does anybody know what we are living for? Yes, God does. He is the one who put this quest into us as humans, into our hearts and into our minds. We were made to pursue meaning in life. 
which means we were made for God. Because we will only find that meaning or purpose or fulfillment or significance in life when we find it in God who put it into our hearts in the first place. And God says in the verse we learn as kids, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, great advice right here for life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Without turning to God, nobody knows what we're living for. Making sense out of life is like chasing the wind. Because first of all, all of our efforts cannot achieve permanent changes. Verse 14. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is wind, vanity, futility, and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon examined everything humans do in life and discovered that all of our achievements, all of our accomplishments are pointless. They are like chasing the wind. The expression that he uses here, he uses nine times in the book of Ecclesiastes, twice in these few verses here. We'll see it again in just another verse. Can you imagine anything more silly than a grown person running around their yard trying to catch the gusts of wind blowing through the trees? Chasing the wind, sheer silliness. And yet, Solomon says, after he's studied all of life, this is exactly what we are all doing as we chase success and fulfillment in life apart from God. It's nothing more than chasing after the wind, which you can never catch. God put in us this desire to be significant. Every human being wants to be significant because it is part of the image of God in us. To find meaning, to find purpose. But we ignore God and we try to find meaning in our accomplishments, in our achievements, in our success, only to spend our lives chasing gusts of wind that swirl around the world. Terry Cole is a world champion. Don't you want to be a world champion? Ought to be significant, right? Terry's achievements have cost him much, but they have gained him very little. In fact, as soon as I tell you what he is world champion of, you're going to say, that seems pretty silly, ridiculous. You see, Terry Cole is the world champion glass eater the world champion of glass eating. You said, I didn't even know they had world champions of glass eating. I didn't even know that. Well, now you do. Asked what it's like to eat glass, he responds, awful, really awful. Does it hurt? Not really, Terry says. It doesn't cut you because you grind it very thoroughly with your teeth. 
As long as you grind it up long enough, you're all right. One reporter asked him, how does it make you to feel to be, how does it make you feel to be a world champion? His response, I'm very proud of what I have achieved. Hmm. Isn't that just like all of us? So proud of our own achievements when all they really are is a slow, awful, pointless grind. We all hope that what we do will make a difference in this world, but it doesn't, I'm here to tell you, apart from God. You can rise to the top of the corporate world. You can be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and all you have done is chase the wind, Solomon says. You can become a great sports hero, a movie star, and all you have done is grind glass. You can even perform great humanitarian deeds, and it's nothing more in the end than chasing the wind. Why? I mean, that doesn't seem right, does it? It seems like all that work we do ought to be significant. We think we're accomplishing meaningful things. Solomon says, I watched and I looked and I examined and I searched and it's all like chewing glass. How can the preacher tell us that what you're doing is pointless? We'll look at verse 15. What is crooked, here's his reason, what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is, what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, James Reitman, in his study of Ecclesiastes, observes that the quest for meaning led Solomon to explore the reasons why we do not find meaning in life apart from God. And he concludes, and we will see this theme throughout these themes throughout the book, he concludes that there are three limitations on our ability to find meaning in life apart from God. And these limitations will come up again and again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first limitation is man's uncertainty. The second is man's mortality. And the third is man's depravity. First of all, we can never be certain that what we do is truly good and right and significant. There's just no certainty to it. We hope, we wish, we want. But humans live their lives guessing at the best options, the best choices, and hoping that these are good. But in fact, we can never know for certain. So the first limitation on our ability to find significance is our our uncertainty about what we're doing and why and all of that. Second, we can never know if what we do will outlast us. We all will die. And those that follow will undo what we do. We humans have precious little time to do anything, and the generations that follow may or may not continue what we started. They're under no obligation. When our time is up, we have no control of what happens next. Our mortality limits us. Third, humans are limited by our depravity. We are sinful. 
Humans are under the curse of God for sin. And life in this world is crooked and broken and lacking. We are crooked and broken, and we can never permanently make things right in this world. What is crooked cannot be made straight, he says. It doesn't matter what it is. You devote your life to it and trying to straighten out the crookedness of this world and you're never quite certain, but you try real hard and then you die and somebody else comes along and back to crookedness it all goes because it never can be permanently straightened by us. We try. We seek to right wrongs. We seek to correct injustice. But soon we die and all our efforts are undone in the end. I don't care what government it is. I don't how much, care how much power you have on earth. You can't permanently straighten out the crookedness of this world. And we cannot permanently straighten what is crooked. But we cannot permanently supply or count what is lacking in this world. We're sort of like a CPA of life on earth. We see all the things that are lacking. We do the bookkeeping and it all comes up short, but we can't ever fix it permanently. Well, maybe for a little while we make a difference, but not for long. We die, nothing changes in the end. We cannot make, what, make up what is lacking in this world by all our best efforts in life. Isn't this a depressing sermon? But let's stop and briefly unpack this concept this morning in practical ways for our lives. And then you can take it from there. All right? You go to work, right? You spend 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year for 40 years. And you retire. And when you look back, what's changed? You've spent 80,000 hours of labor to accomplish what? The company makes a few products, a little money. You make a little money, you do all right. But after you're gone, others do whatever they want with whatever you did, and there's nothing you can do about it. Isn't that great? The widgets you produce in 2010 are the eight tracks of 2020. And if you don't know what eight tracks are, you got, that's my point. You know, all that hard work and all that inventiveness and all that ability. Who cares? The next generation doesn't even know what it is. We want our work to be significant, but in the end it really doesn't change anything. The crooked things are still crooked in this world, and the things that are lacking in this world are still lacking. All right, parents. Surely... What we do as parents has lasting value for change in the lives of our children. But I'm here to tell you that apart from God, it really doesn't. We work, we save, we sacrifice all our lives, and our children can spend our inheritance any way they want after they're gone, after we're gone. Right? The house and all those precious possessions that we pass on to our children are disposed of as they see fit. (laughs) 
They do funerals all the time. Who makes the decisions? Not the dead person, unless they wrote it all down for me beforehand. I get a few of those once in a while. But the people who are alive make all the decisions now. Unless we instill in our children the values we learn from God, there is little that lasts our own mortality. And we can't even guarantee that they'll accept those values that we try so hard to instill in them. There's no guarantee of that. The choices they make are their choices. The life they live is their life. We can't make them be or do what we want them to be or do. We live and they die and they do what they want to do. Depressing, isn't it? What's the key? What will unlock the door to significance for our lives? What will make the crooked things straight in this world? Perhaps we should say who, right? Only God can make the crooked straight because God has made the straight crooked in the first place. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He writes, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not discover anything after him. Okay, we sang, Blessed be the name this morning. Did you notice the words? It's the principle of Ecclesiastes 7. Blessed be your name, Lord. In prosperity, in poverty, in success, in the desert, in the sunlight, in the darkness. Blessed be your name. You're in control, God, I trust you. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says that he can be content whatever the circumstances, right? I know how to live in prosperity. I know how to live in poverty. I can enjoy God and be happy in prosperity. I can trust God and be content in poverty. You know what? This is the great test of whether you've got the key to significance in life right here. In suffering, in poverty, and humility, and struggle, can you trust God? And now what is often even harder, when God blesses you in prosperity and you do well, can you be content in God? Can you enjoy God and be happy in that? It's both that is the test of significance in life. And both, whether in poverty or in prosperity, whether in good things or in bad things, whether in sunlight or in darkness, both come when we find our significance in God. God has bent this world, and only he can straighten it. And the key to fulfillment in life, Ecclesiastes will teach us as we've finish the book, of course, is to accept what God gives, both the good and the bad, and trust Him to take care of what comes after us. 
God has cursed this world because of sin and only God can uncurse this world. And our job is to be content with our lot in life because, because we trust in his sovereignty to change the course of this world. Now, we don't want to end up in fatalism. We are to be active, we are to be productive, but our contentment comes from our walk with God and our trust in him, not our accomplishments, not our achievements. Last Sunday, my dad gave me a newsletter from my cousin and his wife, Michael and Cindy Peckham, who are missionaries with Campus Crusade for Christ. And the story in that letter is of the miners in Chile. And you know, you all followed the story, I'm sure, on the news. The, the miners in Chile who were buried underground way, way down deep for so many, so, so long, and, and all of the efforts that were made to rescue them. On the, 17th, on the 17th day of that ordeal, a man by the name of Christian Morera, the director of Campus Crusade, contacted authorities in the rescue operation, eventually made contact with a daughter and a brother of one of the 33 miners. They were able to send down the, down the tube that they were using to get things down to the miners. They were allowed to send down a, an MP3 copy of the Jesus film, along with MP3 copies of the New Testament for, all, for the miners down there. Jose, the contact in the mine, sent back word that the materials were distributed and that he was fine, quote, because Christ lives in me. And they distributed those materials. He said they were holding prayer services down there deep under the, under the surface of the ground at 12 noon every day and at 6 p.m. each day. At the end of the letter, he said goodbye, and he quoted Psalm 95.4. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. A few days later, Jose asked if Christians could help them by making t-shirts for them to wear down there in the mines. So Campus Crusade set to work to put together these t-shirts and they sent these t-shirts down on the front of the t-shirt it reads thank you lord and on the back is psalm 95 4 in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him if you saw the newscasts of the rescue operation and you saw them come up guess what t-shirt many of them were wearing that's right there he's wearing it thank you lord and on the back, in his hand. In his hand are the depths of the earth. It all comes down to him, doesn't it? Our trust in God. Wherever we are and whatever is going on. Because apart from God, all of our efforts cannot achieve permanent change in this world. But the depths of the earth, even, are in God's hands. Second principle. The more we know, the more frustrated we become. Verses 16 through 18. The preacher says, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified 
and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, chasing the wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Did you know that a West Virginia man once escaped from jail by using a rope made of dental floss, that a kangaroo jumped a pile of lumber ten and a half feet high and 27 feet long, that only two people in Saudi Arabia subscribed to Surfer magazine, that Englishman John Evans kept 66 bricks weighing a total of 296 pounds balanced on his head for 10 seconds, that's a world record, that Iceland consumes more Coca-Cola per person than any other country in the world, that Heinz ketchup poured from the mouth of an upended bottle travels at an average speed of 25 miles per year. <laughs> Did you know that? Well, you do now. Those are all facts. All right? Now, don't you feel smart? <laughs> Doesn't all that knowledge make you feel really good and intelligent and significant this morning? We humans are wired for knowledge by God. He said so. It is one of the traits that sets us apart from the animal kingdom. We want to know things. We want to make sense out of this world. We want to understand why. Pigs don't care why. Chickens don't care why. Humans do. And Solomon set his course to discover the why of life. He says he studied, and he studied everything he could find that would help him comprehend life. He was the wisest man on earth. He applied himself not only to attain knowledge, but to know foolishness as well. He studied insanity as well as wisdom. In other words, he studied all of life. The smart and the stupid. The wisdom and the foolishness that humans think and do. And in the end, he discovered that there was very little difference between the smart and the stupid, between the wise and the foolish, when it comes to finding any lasting meaning in life. In fact, he says, the entire grand search into all avenues of life resulted in pointlessness. His search to understand the mysteries of life was nothing nothing more than chasing after the wind. He was no closer to understanding the meaning of life after all of his studies than he was before he began. So we go to school and we study and we get degrees and we learn and we learn and we learn and we learn. And we're no farther ahead in understanding the meaning of life. What Solomon discovered after all that hard work was that in much wisdom there was sorrow and in much knowledge there was grief. (laughs) So why study, right? All the students are saying, great! I don't need to study for that test. They all know, by the way, that it's grief, right? (laughs) The Hebrew word translated sorrow means to have a feeling of anxiety or even anger over a distressing situation. The more we acquire wisdom, the more we know, the more annoyed we feel at all the wrongs that we see are never righted and all the frustrations we feel over the stupid things that happen. The Hebrew word for grief means pain. It can mean physical pain, but it here probably means that that mental anguish that we feel. We learn all about this life and it only ends up 
making us feel more anguish over what is happening in this world. We are wired for God, by God for knowledge. We cannot help ourselves. You can say, well, I'm just going to be stupid and not learn anything. Humans have to know. We have to learn. Because God wired us that way. But then in the end, we only feel more anxiety and more anguish the more we learn about life. One writer says, those who take life seriously can never take it lightly. But therein lies the problem, isn't it? Because if we take life seriously, then we can't take it lightly and it bothers us the more we know. You turn on the news and we learn all about the bad things that are happening in this world. We know more and more But if we take it all seriously, then we're filled with this anxiety and anguish over all those bad things that happen. So if we watch the news or the internet or read the information on newspapers or wherever and took it all to heart, we spend our days ultimately in misery. There is so little good and so much bad that it would be overwhelming to us. So what we do as a coping mechanism is we distance ourselves. We watch the news, but we really don't take it in. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? Sort of jaded to all of that stuff? Why? Because it's a coping mechanism. It's overwhelming. It's too much. His point is that knowledge, serious knowledge, leads to more anxiety, not less, when it comes to the quest for meaning in life. Now, in our culture, education is supposed to be the cure for all that ails mankind, but it isn't. There are lots of intelligent, brilliant, knowledgeable, immoral, and evil people. D.L. Moody wrote, If a man is stealing nuts and bolts from a railway track, and in order to change him, you send him to college at the end of his education, he'll steal the whole railway track. Didn't solve the problem. What we... No, cannot change the human heart. So we educate and we educate and we educate. But in the end, it doesn't change the human heart. All the knowledge in the world brings no permanent change to the human heart. So the more that we know, the more frustrated we become. And the more people know, the more sophisticated they are at doing all the bad stuff anyway. All our accomplishments, all our intelligence leaves us in the end feeling like we're missing something. What's missing? We do not find meaning from knowledge. I don't, and I'm not saying you shouldn't go to college or you shouldn't study. I have devoted my life to education, certainly, in many ways. But it won't solve your need for meaning apart from God. You won't find significance, say it with me, apart from God. That's Ecclesiastes. Don Hewitt, the executive director of 60 Minutes, retired from the long-running television program back in 2004. At 81 years of age, he retired. One would think that Hewitt would be content to bask in the glow of multiple Emmy Awards and memories of encounters with celebrities and presidents and kings. 
but by his own admission he feels empty. One article described him walking through his office, gesturing to the walls. There hung photographs of presidents and diplomats and foreign leaders and entertainers. There were notes from Presidents Reagan and Eisenhower on his walls. A constellation of Emmy Awards that he had won in life. Arrays of plaques and posters and medallions. And he said, I'm not trying to be an egomaniacal maniac, but look, he said, I don't want to lower the temperature. Where do, we, where do you go? What do you do that's going to be like this? What I've got to do is feed my soul. Wow, finally, at 81 years of age, we get to the point. What I've got to do is feed my soul. Significance in life is found in our souls, and our souls were made for God. It is all chasing after the wind, and we'll end up at whatever age, 81 if it comes to that, feeling empty and frustrated and lost apart from a right relationship with God Almighty, the one who made us with that desire. Following Christ is the only way, folks, to find significance in life. Leo Tolstoy wrote what the Encyclopedia Britannica describes as one of the two or three greatest novels in world literature, War and Peace. But he also wrote a book in 1879 called a confession, which tells the story of his search for meaning and purpose in life in the 1800s. But the search hasn't changed, has it, in the 21st century? Rejecting Christianity as a child, Leo Tolstoy left his, uni- left his university seeking pleasure. In Moscow and in St. Petersburg, he drank heavily, lived promiscuously, gambled frequently. He did everything and anything he felt like doing, trying to find meaning in life. His ambition was to become wealthy and famous. And nothing, absolutely nothing he tried satisfied him. In 1862, he married a loving wife. They had 13 children. He was surrounded by what appeared to be complete happiness, and yet he was haunted by feelings of suicide. He was on the verge of it many times. Is there any meaning in my life which will not be annihilated by the inevitability of death which awaits me, he said. Nicky Gumbel in The Questions of Life explains what triggered his change. He searched for the answer in every field of science and philosophy. As he looked around at his contemporaries, he saw that people were not facing up to the first order questions of life. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? What is life all about? Eventually he found that the peasant people of Russia had been able to answer these questions through their Christian faith. And he came to realize that only in Jesus Christ do we find the answer. After all of that searching, it's only in Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? I trust and pray that everyone in this room does. Are you living for him? 
Is he preeminent? If not, then you've dedicated your life to pointlessness, whether you know it or not. Knowing Jesus is the only way to find fulfillment in life. Father, draw us to yourself this morning at the foot of the cross that we might know you through Jesus, your son, and that we might find fulfillment and purpose in our lives and escape this sense of despair and emptiness that comes from living life apart from you. In Jesus' name, your son. Amen.